Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, March 7, 2023. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says that interest rates may need to be increased faster and to a higher ultimate level than previously thought due to persistent inflation that has not come down as far and as fast as was anticipated from the rate hikes implemented so far. Coming up, we'll hear from Fed Chair Powell before the Senate Banking Committee and talk about his testimony with Politico economics reporter Victoria Guida. Justice Department suing to block the JetBlue Airways takeover of Spirit Airlines, saying that merger would lead to higher airfares and fewer choices for passengers. Reports that the four American citizens kidnapped in Mexico by drug cartel members of those two have been found dead. The two others found alive and are now back in the United States. We'll get the latest from the White House and the State Department. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is saying he is furious that Fox News allowed host Tucker Carlson to cherry-pick never-before-seen police video from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol to falsely portray it as a day of mostly peaceful chaos. Tucker Carlson doing that in his Monday night broadcast. The Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell also saying he disagrees with the portrayal and that Fox News made a mistake. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, potential Republican presidential candidate, giving a state of the state address his first since his reelection. And he lists off a number of areas where he says Florida is number one and will remain so. And a bipartisan bill introduced in the Senate to allow video apps that present threats to national security, including TikTok, owned by a Chinese company, to be banned. This from the Associated Press, the Federal Reserve could increase the size of its interest rate hikes and raise borrowing costs to higher levels than previously projected if evidence continues to point to a robust economy and persistently high inflation. Chair Jerome Powell said Tuesday in prepared testimony to a Senate panel. His comments raised the possibility that the Fed will increase its key interest rate by a half percentage point at its next meeting, March 21st and 22nd. After having carried out a quarter point hike in early February, the Fed previously raised its benchmark rate by a half point in December and imposed three three quarter point hikes before that. For the past year, the central bank has raised its key rate, which affects many consumer and business loans, eight times. That reporting from Associated Press. C-SPAN covered this hearing. You can find it in its entirety at our website, cspan.org. Here's the Fed Chair Jerome Powell, part of his opening statement for this before the Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee about those rate hikes. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go <clears throat> and is likely to be bumpy. As I mentioned, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be, to be higher than previously anticipated. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Restoring price stability will likely require that we maintain a restrictive stance of monetary policy for some time. Our overarching focus is using our tools to bring inflation back down to our 2% goal and to keep longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. Restoring price stability is essential to set the stage for achieving maximum employment and stable prices over the longer run. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. We will stay the course until the job is done. 
Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell before the Senate Banking Committee, part of the semi-annual monetary report to Congress from the Fed. On Wednesday, he's going to be before the House Financial Services Committee. More from the Associated Press article on his testimony. Several Fed officials said last week that they would favor raising the Fed's key rate above the 5.1 percent level that they had projected in December if growth and inflation stay elevated. Inflation, as measured year over year, has slowed from its peak in June of 9.1 percent to 6.4 percent, but its progress stalled in January. The Fed's preferred measure of price increases rose from December to January by the most in seven months. Back to the hearing, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, asking Fed Chair Powell about the effects of the Fed's actions on average Americans and their jobs. The Fed's goal is to slow inflation, and your tool, raising interest rates, is designed to slow the economy and throw people out of work. So far, you haven't tipped the economy into recession, but you haven't brought inflation entirely under control either. And maybe the reason for that is that other things are also keeping prices high, things you can't fix with high interest rates, things like price gouging and supply chain kinks and a war in Ukraine. But you are determined to continue to raise interest rates, so I want to take a look at where you're headed. In December, the Fed released its projections on the state of the economy under your monetary policy plan. According to the Fed's own report, if you continue raising interest rates as you plan, unemployment will be 4.6% by the end of the year, more than a full point higher than it is today. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not... But it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs, people who are working right now making their mortgages. So, Chair Powell, if you could speak directly to the 2 million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? How would you explain your view that they need to lose their jobs? I would explain to people more broadly that that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly. All of them, not just two million of them, but all of them are suffering under high inflation. And we are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And putting two million people out of work is just part of the cost and they just have to bear it? Well, they, will, will working people be better off if, if we just walk away from our jobs and, and inflation remains well, 5 6 percent? Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, questioning the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell at today's banking committee hearing. Several Republicans on the committee making the point today that the dramatic increase in federal spending over the past couple of years has contributed to high inflation. Senator Cynthia Lummis, Republican from Wyoming, asking the Fed chair if the Federal Reserve takes into account how rising interest rates would make it harder to pay the interest on the accumulated national debt. When you're setting these rates and making these decisions uh, and seeking that 2 percent magic number, um, are you considering the cost of borrowing for the United States, knowing that Congress has over-borrowed 
and that we have overspent and that the national debt is at now at least 97% of GDP and that we're um, going to face challenges of our own making. This is not about what the Fed has done. This is what about the Congress has done that you have to factor in uh, to your decisions. Do you think about the costs of borrowing for the United States itself? No, we do not, and we're not going to. In other words, that's, that would be fiscal dominance. If we were you know, constrained in our, in our monetary policy by the budgetary situation of the United States, and we're not, we're, we're clearly not, the, the, the path we're on is not sustainable, but the level of debt that we have is not unsustainable, is not, is not, is sustainable, put it that way. So we don't think about, about interest costs when we make monetary policy. We think about maximum employment and price stability. It's your opinion that the level of debt we have is sustainable? Yes. I mean, I, we're, we could, clearly we, we have the, you know, the largest economy in the world. We can service this debt. That's not the, that's not the problem. The problem is that we're, we're on a path where the debt is growing substantially faster than the economy. And that's kind of by definition in the long run unsustainable. And the way countries have gotten or fixed that is, is with long, longer-term programs that have bipartisan support and that address the actual problem in the budget. That, that's really the, 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 the formula. Thank you. Senator Cynthia Lummis, Republican from Wyoming, questioning the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell at today's Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee hearing. Victoria Guida is an economics reporter with Politico and has been covering the hearing. Joining us now by phone. Thank you very much. The Fed Chair Powell made some news today about more interest rate hikes higher and faster than previously announced. Usually these hearings don't produce this kind of news. (laughs) Yeah, the Fed Chair is very controlled. So usually when he makes news, it's because he wants to make news. Um, Basically, the the underlying story here is that inflation had sort of been on a steady downtrend. Um, It looked like the economy was slowing. And then we had some data in January that showed that inflation, um, you know, had sort of moved sideways, right, where it wasn't continuing that sort of steady drop down. Uh, The job market's still very strong, which the Fed worries will lead to a situation where wages start pushing up inflation. Um, And so it's made the Fed um, even more wary. And even though, you know, we, we still have some data points ahead before they make their next interest rate decision, basically what they're saying is, you know, the data as it is now is making them think they're going to have to go higher than they expected and maybe even a little bit faster to get there than they expected. How did the senators react today? So the senators, uh, you know, were, it was sort of a mixed bag where on the one hand you had Sherrod Brown, who chairs the uh, Senate Banking Committee, basically warning Powell he needs to also keep in mind workers' futures. Um, You know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, really cut into him about the fact that, uh, you know, raising interest rates higher would probably mean a higher unemployment rate, um, which could mean, you know, know, as many or as few as, you know, 2 million workers – uh, who are currently employed out of a job. And uh, you also had some concern that inflation is still as high as it is. Um, Republicans weren't so much going after the Fed for that. They were more making the point that um, 
you know, they see inflation as being caused by a lot of the government spending that's happened under the Biden administration. Um, But, you know, this is a very tricky situation that the Fed has to balance, where on the one hand, they want to bring inflation down. um, But ideally, you would like to minimize the pain to the job market. What other issues came up today, sometimes other than inflation, the senators want to raise those issues? Yeah, so there was definitely talk of regulation. So, for example, the Fed um, under Biden's appointees is looking at potentially increasing the amount of loss-absorbing capital that banks have to hold, basically, you know, trying to make sure that they have that they don't rely too much on debt. And, um, you know, this is sort of a, a, a bottom line issue for banks where they don't they are they say that they already have very high capital levels and they don't want to have to increase them. And there were a lot of Republicans who um, were sort of picking up that line that, you know, we don't want that they were urging the Fed to not raise capital requirements on banks because it might hurt lending and economic growth and all of that. Um, We also there was also some discussion of crypto um, and, you know, Chair Powell was pretty blunt about the fact that we've seen a lot of fraud and turmoil there and uh, how it would be good to have some more regulation in that sector. Um, There was also some talk by Republicans about the fact that um, the Fed has been looking at how climate change might affect uh, banks' financial risk, um, where, you know, as climate change gets worse, it could affect the value of different things that uh, banks invest in, like real estate, and the Fed has increasingly been looking at what the impacts of that might be. And, and Republicans, you know, were, were sort of warning the Fed that they're not a climate policymaker and that they need to sort of stick to their to their mandate. So, um, yeah, definitely a grab bag of, of different things that came up. We're talking with Victoria Guida, an economics reporter with Politico. So this is the semi-annual monetary report to Congress, and you, and you just use words like the senators urged and the senators warned, but the Fed is independent. So what is the relationship here as the Fed chair comes before Congress? Yeah, sure. So the, the Fed is, is supposed to be somewhat insulated from politics, and the reasoning for that is because they're supposed to make decisions that are in the long-term interest of the country and not the short-term interest of one party or another doing well because, you know, you're, maybe you juice the economy in the short run and um, that could potentially have bad consequences later. Um, but the Fed was created by Congress um, to, you know, basically set the price of money and um, to be sort of the, the primary inflation fighting body. And um, therefore, the Fed has some accountability to Congress because theoretically Congress can change the laws that dictate what it does. And so, um, you know, basically Chair Powell talks about his accountability to Congress as being part of his democratic accountability because they don't have direct accountability to the people. But um, people like him and the other Fed board members are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And then, as I said, Congress has the ability to theoretically, you know, change the, the laws around how the Fed operates. So there's there's sort of like uh, indirect democratic accountability. And Powell says that in order to, uh, you know, fulfill their 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 role in a democracy, they have to be transparent about what they're doing and transparent, especially to the people that we, the people, elected. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a very interesting relationship. Uh, you know, the, it's interesting because independence is not complete independence. 
um, because of all the things that I was just talking about, there is there are ways for the political apparatus to affect the Fed. It's just that when it comes to sort of these day to day decisions of what to do with interest rates, um, you know, generally the executive branch and Congress sort of leave the overall strategy to the Fed, but then, you know, weigh in on and, and make sure that the Fed is thinking about things they think they should be thinking about. And the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, will be before the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday, now controlled by Republicans. What would you expect from that? Yeah, so some of the issues that I mentioned a little while ago are probably going to be front and center um, in, in terms of, you know, bank regulation, in terms of the Fed's role in climate change. You hear Republicans complaining a lot about, uh, you know, ESG, which is, you know, environmental, social government governance investments. And, you know, they tell the Fed that they shouldn't be too woke. Um, so you, you, you might hear some of that. Um, you know, on the, on the Democratic side, you'll probably hear a lot more defense uh, of, this, of, you know, the job market and warning the Fed about, you know, not causing too much pain to the job market. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think generally lawmakers – also, just try and use these hearings as an opportunity to try and understand more about what the Fed's doing. Um, Jay Powell is somebody who has a pretty good relationship with members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, on both sides of the aisle. He spends a lot of time talking to lawmakers. And so um, they also really respect his opinion on things. And so, um, you know, there's, a, like I said, there's going to be also just a lot of discussion of what's going on with the economy. Victoria Guida, economics reporter with Politico. Find her stories at politico.com and on Twitter at VTG2. Thank you very much. Thank you. On Wall Street, stocks dramatically lower after Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that interest rate hikes will need to be increased to deal with high inflation. The Dow down 574, NASDAQ down 145, S&P down 62. Justice Department today suing to prevent JetBlue Airways from taking over Spirit Airlines. CNBC reports that Spirit Airlines agreed to sell itself to JetBlue last summer after a long battle for the carrier between JetBlue and Frontier Airlines. New York-based JetBlue's acquisition of Spirit faced a high hurdle with regulators from the start, and the airline on Monday said it expected DOJ action this week. JetBlue's takeover of Spirit would create the fifth largest airline in the country and also eliminate Florida-based Spirit with its business model of rock-bottom fares and fees for everything from carry-on baggage to seat assignments. That from CNBC. The Attorney General Merrick Garland making the announcement today from the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. Our complaint alleges that JetBlue's proposed $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit violates Section 7 of the Clayton Act. We allege that if allowed to proceed, this merger will limit choices and drive up ticket prices for passengers across the country. And we further allege that the impact of this merger will be particularly harmful for travelers who rely on what are known as ultra-low-cost carriers in order to fly. Those include working and middle-class Americans who travel for personal as opposed to business reasons and who must pay their own way. By acquiring Spirit, JetBlue will eliminate the largest ultra-low-cost carrier in the United States. Today, JetBlue and Spirit compete on hundreds of routes that serve tens of millions of air travelers every year. Direct competition between the two airlines has intensified in the last five years 
as Spirit has expanded into markets where JetBlue already offered service. On dozens of routes, serving tens of millions of passengers, JetBlue and Spirit have large combined market shares. For example, on the Boston-Miami-Fort Lauderdale route, which serves about 1.5 million passengers annually, JetBlue and Spirit together currently account for nearly 50% of the market. For service between Boston and San Juan, the two airlines account for nearly 90% of the passengers flying the route today. And on some routes, JetBlue and Spirit are the only two carriers providing nonstop service, such as between Miami-Fort Lauderdale and Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. Eliminating the competition between JetBlue and Spirit on these and other routes would eliminate Spirit's unique and disruptive role in the industry and significantly harm consumers. The Attorney General Merrick Garland today at the Justice Department in Washington. He also said that today's lawsuit is designed to prevent further consolidation of the airline industry as a whole. He said there are only four airlines that control close to 80 percent of the U.S. market. United, American, Delta, and Southwest. This is Washington Today. An update on the four Americans kidnapped in northeastern Mexico late last week. CNN reports two of the four were found dead and two were found alive, Mexican officials said today. The U.S. official familiar with the case previously told CNN that investigators believe a Mexican cartel likely mistook them for Haitian drug smugglers and that the Americans are believed to have been targeted by mistake. The group of friends traveled from South Carolina so that one of them, mother of six, could undergo a medical procedure across the border. More from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. I wanted to start today by addressing the announcement by Mexican officials regarding the status of the four Americans attacked in Mexico. We're still working with Mexican officials to learn more and to have all Americans return to the United States. President Biden has been kept updated on this incident. Senior members of the White House has, have also been engaged. We extend our deepest condolences to their families and friends. For the sake of privacy and out of respect to the families, we are going to refrain uh, from further comment about those circumstances at this time. I can confirm that U.S. officials are in touch with the families of the individuals, but again, we will respect their privacy regarding our conversations with them. We appreciate the hard work of the Justice Department and the FBI, DHS, and DEA for their swift response to this awful incident and for their continued collaboration with Mexican authorities. These U.S. agencies remain in close touch with their counterparts and we expect that they will share more as they can. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable, no matter where or under what circumstances they happen. We will continue to work closely with the Mexican government to ensure justice is done in this case. Since day one of this administration, we have been focused on disrupting transnational criminal organizations, including Mexican drug cartels and human strugglers smugglers, pardon me. In the past few months, President Biden signed an executive order giving the Department of Treasury expanded authorities to penalize cartel organizations and those who control or enable them. And we have imposed powerful new sanctions against cartel organizations in recent weeks. 
We remain committed to applying the full weight of our efforts and resources to counter them. Right now, our immediate concerns are for the safe return of our citizens, the health and well-being of those who, who survived this attack, and the support which must be rendered to the families of those who, who, do, who need it. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters today in the White House briefing room. A Fox News story about this incident includes this. The video of the violent incident shows armed men in body armor dragging one person across the pavement and pushing a woman into the bed of a white truck, then dragging two more men who appeared to be wounded across the pavement and loading them into the bed of the same truck. Photos from the scene show a white minivan with North Carolina plates riddled with bullet holes shortly after the kidnappings with a woman who reportedly witnessed the attack telling the Associated Press she saw the minivan collide with another vehicle before hearing gunfire and seeing armed men approach the van. The group crossed from Brownsville, Texas, into the Mexican city of Matamoros, an area that has been plagued by cartel violence and carries a travel advisory from the State Department warning Americans to avoid visiting. That from Fox News. At today's State Department briefing, spokesperson Ned Price had an update. Today, we learned the very sad news that Mexican state and federal authorities recovered four U.S. citizens kidnapped on March 3rd in Matamoros, Mexico. Two U.S. citizens were returned to the United States. The bodies of two other U.S. citizens killed in the same incident were also recovered. We're providing all appropriate assistance to them and their families. We extend our deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of the deceased. We thank our Mexican and U.S. law enforcement partners for their efforts to find these innocent victims, and the task forward is to ensure that justice is done. The State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, part of his opening statement, he went on to give updates on other issues and then turned to the reporters, and the first questions came back to these four Americans kidnapped and two of them killed in Mexico. Can I just ask you to clarify or extrapolate a little bit on what you said about the Mexico. So you're saying that, yes, you have now been able to confirm that two of the four were killed? That's correct. And that the other and, and that the other two are now back in the U.S.? The, the, the two survivors? The two survivors uh, have since been repatriated back to the United States. Uh, that occurred with the assistance uh, of our Mexican partner, partners, with the assistance uh, of our officials uh, in Mexico. Uh, we are in the process of working to repatriate the remains uh, of the two Americans who were killed in this incident. Okay, so they, so the, the, those bodies are not, are not uh, back. Not and, yet. And and underst- I understand that the investigation is still early, but do you have any reason to believe that they were targeted? Matt, just as you said, the investigation is in its earliest days. Uh, I understand we uh, may have more to share from the FBI uh, at the appropriate time, but uh, from the Department of State, it's important for us not to impinge on investigative equities, uh, especially in an investigation like this that implicates uh, the kidnapping of four Americans, the death uh, of two Americans, uh, and two Americans who survived uh, what, by all accounts, uh, must have been a traumatic and harrowing experience. So we don't want to get ahead of that investigation. State Department spokesperson Ned Price with reporters in the State Department briefing room. On Monday night, before the confirmation that two of the four Americans kidnapped in Mexico had been killed, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, was interviewed on Fox News 
about his proposal to use the U.S. military against the cartels. Well, I would follow Bill Barr's advice and get tough on Mexico. It's not just the hostages. Number one, I'd do everything I could to get them back. I'd do what Trump did. I'd put Mexico on, note, Mexico, on, Mexico on notice. If you continue to give safe haven to fentanyl drug dealers, then you're an enemy of the United States. Seventy to 100,000 people have died from fentanyl poisoning coming from Mexico and China, and this administration has done nothing about it. So Bill Barr's idea about... I'm going to introduce legislation, Jesse, to make uh, certain Mexican drug cartels foreign terrorist organizations under U.S. law and set the stage to use military force if necessary to protect America from being poisoned by things coming out of Mexico. So what would Lindsey Graham do? I would tell Mexican government, if you don't clean up your act, we're going to clean it up for you. Senator Lindsey Graham on Fox News on Monday night. New York Times reporting on this story has this. While Americans can be victims of the violence that plagues much of the border, it is often because they are at the wrong place at the wrong time, traversing a frontier rife with criminal activity and drug cartels that actively pushes drugs, migrants, and even endangered wildlife into the United States for a profit, sometimes with the help of corrupt Mexican authorities. But the seemingly targeted nature of the kidnapping last week with a car ramming into the vehicle the American nationals were traveling in has led to the questions about whether or not the victims were mistaken for someone else. Cartels often avoid targeting American nationals, fearful of the blowback it will cause by U.S. law enforcement. That from The New York Times. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile video app and wherever you get your podcasts. A few other headlines. Gigi Sohn has withdrawn her nomination for FCC chair, which The Hill reports has been held up for more than two years amid partisan gridlock on the Senate Commerce Committee, leaving the FCC with a four-member board split down party lines. In a statement, Gigi Sohn blames legions of cable and media industry lobbyists, their bought and paid for surrogates and dark money political groups with bottomless pockets that distorted my over 30-year history as a consumer advocate into an absurd caricature of blatant lies. White House says that President Biden will propose to increase the Medicare tax rate on people who earn more than $400,000 a year from 3.8% to 5%. And that will make the Medicare trust fund solvent for an additional 25 years. This will be part of the president's fiscal year 2024 federal budget proposal that he'll be unveiling on Thursday in Philadelphia. President Biden will be hosting the South Korean president on April 26th for an official state visit, including a state dinner at the White House. And Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat from California, who had been in the hospital with shingles, is now out, tweeting, I want to thank everyone for the well wishes and the hospital staff for providing excellent care. I'm recovering at home now while I continue receiving treatment and look forward to returning to the Senate as soon as possible. Senator Feinstein is 89 years old. This article from CNN, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger on Tuesday ripped into Fox News host Tucker Carlson over his commentary about footage from the January 6, 2021 insurrection that he aired Monday night, saying the host cherry-picked from the footage to to present offensive and misleading conclusions about the attack. Tom Manger said the program conveniently cherry-picked from the calmer moments of our 41,000 hours of video. The commentary fails to provide context about the chaos and violence that happened before or during 
these less tense moments. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted Tucker Carlson access to those more than 40,000 hours of the Capitol security footage from January 6th attack. Tucker Carlson, who used the footage to attempt to downplay the violence and defend the pro-Trump mob, claimed he checked with Capitol Police before airing the footage. That from CNN. We'll get congressional reaction to this in just a moment, but here is a minute of Tucker Carlson's broadcast on Fox News Monday night. These are the pictures you've seen of January 6th. They're familiar because they've been playing on a loop on every media outlet in America for the last two years. There's a reason for that. But it turns out there's quite a bit of video you haven't seen. And that video tells a very different story about what happened on January 6th. More than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from in and around the Capitol have been withheld from the public. And once you see the video, you'll understand why. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. By controlling the images you were allowed to view from January 6th, they controlled how the public understood that day. They could lie about what happened, and you would never know the difference. Those lies had a purpose. They created a pretext for a federal crackdown on opponents of the Uniparty in Washington. Tucker Carlson hosts the Fox News program on Monday night. Today, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said this on the Senate floor. Last night, millions of Americans tuned in to one of the most shameful hours we have ever seen on cable television. With contempt for the facts, disregard of the risks, and knowing full well he was lying, lying to his audience, Fox News host Tucker Carlson ran a lengthy segment last night arguing the January 6th Capitol attack was not a violent insurrection. By diving deep into the waters of conspiracy and cherry-picking from thousands of hours of security footage, Mr. Carlson told the bold-faced lie that the Capitol attack, which we all saw with our own eyes, was somehow not an attack at all. He tried to argue it was nothing more than a peaceful sightseeing tour. Can you imagine? A nonviolent demonstration, a perfectly fine and appropriate instance of people expressing their opinion. I. So many others who were here in the Capitol and millions and millions of Americans are just furious with Tucker Carlson and Kevin McCarthy today. Many of my staff were here at the Capitol on January 6th. Their lives were put in danger, as were the lives of many of my colleagues, as well as police, maintenance staff, reporters, countless others. At one point, I was within 30 feet of the rioters. One of them, I was told, shouted out, let's get him. Before my detail pulled me away and we ran in the other direction. To say January 6th was not violent is a lie, a lie pure and simple. I don't think I've ever seen a primetime cable news anchor manipulate his viewers the way Mr. Carlson did last night. I don't think I've ever seen an anchor treat the American people and American democracy with such disdain. And he's going to come back tonight with another segment 
Fox News should tell him not to. Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, tell Carlson not to run a second segment of lies. You know it's a lie. You've admitted it's a lie. And Speaker McCarthy is every bit as culpable. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, today on the Senate floor. It was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy who gave Fox News host Tucker Tucker Carlson access to that police video. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, also weighing in today, saying he agrees with the Capitol Police Chief's statement, again, which called Tucker Carlson's depiction of the attack on January 6, 2021, on the Capitol offensive and misleading. Senator McConnell meeting with reporters. That you agree with the Capitol Police's very serious concerns about the release of this footage. Was it a mistake by Speaker McCarthy to give access to Tucker Carlson of this security footage? My uh, concern is how it was depicted, which is a different issue. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. Um, It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. Another round of videos that are going to be released today. I understand that you're upset with the way that Fox is uh, depicting it, but he's been forecasting this for months, asking for this access to this footage to have a presentation just like this. Was it a mistake for (laughs) the speaker to hand that? You guys know I have many faults, but one of them is not answering the question in a way that I don't want to answer it. I've given you the answer. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, the minority leader, meeting with reporters. This from The Hill. U.S. Capitol Police say they saw just one of the many clips from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol that Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired on Monday night after he was granted access by Speaker McCarthy. We repeatedly requested that any clips be shown to us first for security review, Capitol Police told The Hill. So far, we have seen we have only been given the ability to preview a single clip out of the multiple clips that aired. Limited consultation comes after Speaker McCarthy said Capitol Police would be consulted before the video aired to address security concerns. Tucker Carlson said on his show that his team checked with Capitol Police before airing the footage and that their reservations were minor and reasonable. That reporting from The Hill. Governor of Florida Ron DeSantis, who's been mentioned as a possible 2024 Republican presidential candidate, gave his State of the State address today to lawmakers in Tallahassee. It's the first speech of this kind for his second term. He was just reelected in November, and it comes as the two-month Florida legislative session is about to begin. Before laying out the agenda of bills that he'd like to see passed, he gave a summary of what he says has been accomplished in his first term. My duty under the Constitution is to inform the legislature concerning the condition of the state and to recommend measures in the public interest. Well, as we used to do in the military, here's the bluff, the bottom line up front. Florida is number one 
and working together, we will ensure that Florida remains the number one state in these United States. Florida is the fastest growing state in the nation. We rank number one for net in-migration. We rank number one in the nation for new business formations. We are number one in economic growth amongst large states. Florida has more people employed today than before the pandemic. Our unemployment rate is one of the lowest on record and it is significantly lower than the national average. And of course, as many of you know in this room, the last two years, we've seen the largest budget surpluses in the history of the state of Florida. And we do that with having the lowest per capita state tax and lowest per capita state debt burdens amongst all large states. We rank number one in the nation in tourism and we just experienced yet another record-breaking year for visitors to the Sunshine State. We are number one in law enforcement recruitment and support. Florida's crime rate stands at a 50-year low. We are number... We rank number one in the nation for education freedom. We rank number one in the nation for parental involvement in education. We rank number one in fourth grade reading and math amongst all large states. And we have the number one public higher education system in the country. We are number one amongst large states for the quality of our roads. And Florida has the top three cruise ports in the entire world. We rank number one for space-related development, manufacturing, and flight. And maybe most famously, we rank number one for protections of our citizens against the biomedical security state, from prohibiting jab or job mandates to banning vaccine passports to ensuring hospital visitation rights. We defied the experts. We bucked the elites. We ignored the chatter. We did it our way, the Florida way. And the result is that we are the number one destination for our fellow Americans who are looking for a better life. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his State of the State address in the capital city, Tallahassee, and he has been mentioned as a possible Republican presidential candidate has not announced any campaign. NBC News reporting on this speech writes Florida state legislative session will be in full effect until early May with a slew of bills on the docket from gun rights to further restricting diversity efforts in public universities. This is Washington Today. 
A bipartisan group of a dozen U.S. senators introducing a bill today to give the Commerce Secretary the power to ban TikTok, that video app owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, and also ban any other foreign-based technologies if they pose national security threats. In the case of TikTok, there are concerns the app is collecting American users' personal data, and TikTok is used by more than 100 million Americans. The lead Senate sponsor is a Democrat Mark Warner of Virginia, chair of the Intelligence Committee. He led off a news conference today. Today, everybody's talking about TikTok and the ability of that platform to be used by the Communist Party, both to take on data, but also potentially as a malign influence and propaganda tool. But before there was TikTok, there was Huawei and ZTE. And before that, there was Russia's Kaspersky Labs. So what we are trying to deal with here is the risks of insecure information and communication technologies, ICT. And whether that comes in the form of software, where oftentimes that software can provide backdoors into sensitive uh, American intelligence and uh, technology means. Hardware, uh, a la the, ha- um, the Huawei equipment that, uh, interestingly enough, was oftentimes sold into those rural markets where we had some of our uh, national defense establishment. Or social media platforms, where we've seen abilities to both collect data and um, present malign influence operations. Now, these risks are not going away. And unfortunately, our tools to date have been relatively limited. For example, even though the FCC ultimately was able to ban China Mobile and China Telecom from offering telecommunication services, they still, because it was outside the FCC's jurisdiction could still offer cloud computing and business data services in the United States. We lack, at this moment in time, a holistic interagency, whole of government approach. So instead of playing whack-a-mole on Huawei one day, ZTE the next, Kaspersky, TikTok, we need a more comprehensive approach to evaluating and mitigating these threats posed by these foreign technologies from these adversarial nations. With that in mind, I'm proud to stand here with some of our co-sponsors on the Restrict Act, which will give the President, and more specifically the Secretary of Commerce, new authorities to mitigate the threats posed by technology products from adversarial nations. Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, chair of the Intelligence Committee at a news conference today on Capitol Hill, and those senators surrounding him, both Republicans and Democrats. This comes nearly a week after the House Foreign Affairs Committee passed a Republican-sponsored bill that does much the same thing with banning TikTok. That legislation, though, passed along party lines out of committee, 24 to 16. Republicans, yes, and Democrats, no. Also, TikTok CEO scheduled to appear as a witness at a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing March 23rd. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin making an unannounced trip to Iraq, meeting with Prime Minister Mohammed al-Sudani and saying the U.S. is committed to keeping a military presence in Iraq to continue the fight against ISIS, also known as Islamic State and Daesh. Reuters reports that the 2003 invasion of Iraq led to the deaths of tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians and created instability that eventually paved the way for the rise of Islamic State militants after the U.S. withdrew its forces in 2011. Secretary Austin spoke with reporters in Baghdad. We're deeply committed to ensuring that the Iraqi people can live in peace and dignity with safety and security and with economic opportunity for all. 
Now, our defense cooperation against Daesh is a key pillar of our bilateral relationship. And the United States remains committed to this fight in support of Iraq's security and the security of the entire region. Prime Minister Sudani and I both reaffirmed that commitment today. You know, just a few years ago, Daesh was marching across Iraq, terrorizing its citizens and threatening the stability of the entire region. In response, the United States convened a global coalition of 80 countries. And that coalition responded to the request of the sovereign government of Iraq to work alongside them to defeat this ruthless terrorist enemy. And we'll continue to listen to our partners and rally together with them in this fight. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Baghdad, Iraq. More from the Reuters article, the U.S. currently has 2,500 troops in Iraq and an additional 900 in Syria to help advise and assist local troops in combating Islamic State, also known as ISIS or Daesh, who in 2014 seized swaths of territory in both countries. Islamic State is far from the formidable force it once was, but militant cells have survived across parts of northern Iraq and northeastern Syria. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.